three objectives of the course. One, one, one broad disclaimer, and I introduced this in detail in week one, touched upon it in week two, we'll touch upon it again. One broad disclaimer. Uh, everything that I'm sharing with you fits within the boundaries of what our church believes. I, I know that for some of you, uh, specifically regarding the, the sequence of future events um, that I believe the New Testament teaches, is different than some of what you have, have been exposed to in other places. Um, it was for me too. What I, what I am not doing, what I may not do, what I do not have the authority to do, is teach against this church's confession of faith. Um, if I ever had a mind to do that, I suppose I could take a shot at getting this church to modify its confession of faith, starting with a, what I'm sure would be a robust argument with the elder body. And the good news for the body of Christ is I'd probably lose that argument. Uh, and that would be that. Would be that. Uh, I'm not inclined to do that. I have no category of my theology where I need to do that. Um, I am blessed to enthusiastically affirm our confession of faith, which as, I've, as, as, as you know, if you've been around, as I will share with you if you don't know and are curious, it is the Baptist Faith and Message, the, the year 2000 version of that. It is readily available all over the place. It's not hard for you. If you want to know, well, what do we believe at McGregor about, what do we believe about a topic? Now, you're going to find, well, what do we believe at McGregor about dates and uh, the Baptist faith and message doesn't address that. So what we believe is that that is a matter of conscience. There are a lot of those. You want to know what I believe personally about a, a given matter? I'm fairly free with opinions most of the time, but, but please don't confuse. You must never confuse what I personally believe with what our church believes. Our church has a confession of faith, which is an interpretive guideline for the Word of God that we have mutually embraced together as part of our sibling-to-sibling -sibling covenant to follow Jesus together. And that's a really good thing, okay? Now, my three objectives, they have not changed. Number one, that you would know what you believe, that you and a Bible and a legal pad can define and defend your position. I got a very sweet email this week. Um, several sweet emails, a couple less sweet, but that's, no, 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 that's okay. That, nothing, nothing ugly, um, but, but one, of the, one of the very sweet emails, the person, the person has incidental to what blessed me in their email, what, um, they, they have come to, to see and embrace the position that I've been teaching, but for me that is incidental. The first two-thirds of their email was, and I'm paraphrasing, all my life I've held a particular position, but I never understood it biblically. And over the last couple of weeks, I've gone looking, and now I have a position that I understand and can explain biblically. You know what? I almost don't care what your position is. If you have a position that you hold to and understand and can explain biblically, bravo, that is an explicitly stated objective that you'd be able to do that. Um, second, that, 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 that your faith and mine, regardless of what you believe about the end of the age, 
which is coming at us at the rate of one day per day. <laughs> it, is, it is, we must confess to one another, it is possible that none of us will be participants in the events of the end of the age on earth, period. Uh, during the Reformation, everybody knew that the wars ripping apart Europe during the Reformation were in fact the wars of the end of time and the Pope was the Antichrist. Everybody knew that. Well, that was more than 500 years ago when that started. They were wrong. Um, and, and you and I don't know that it might be another 50 or 500 or 5,000 years before the end of the age. But the day is coming when you get the life-destroying medical diagnosis, the life-destroying criminal accusation, the life-destroying family betrayal, etc. Some of you are veterans of those already. That you would have a faith that is tribulation-ready, whether we're talking about the end times tribulation, when Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble, the word he used for trouble there is thlipsis. It's the Greek word, the same Greek word that is used in other places in the New Testament for the tribulation. Jesus wasn't talking in John 16, about the end of time. Jesus was saying, in this life, you are going to face noteworthy difficulties. There's not a lot about, about pre-tribulational teaching that, that kind of um, upsets me. I, I, don't, I don't get upset easily. But one of the things that upsets me, I have heard teachers teach that one of the strongest argumentative points for the pre-tribulational rapture view, the view that God's people will disappear from the earth before things begin to get a bit unhinged, is that God would never allow his people to pass through events like those in the tribulation. God would never allow his people to pass through war and famine and disease and martyrdom. Well, first, how, how, how completely ignorant of the New Testament do you have to be to make that statement, whether you're talking about, whether you're talking, I mean, we've got martyrdom before you get, before you get to Acts chapter 12. You've got James, one of the apostles, being beheaded in Acts chapter 12 by Herod. And you know what? Beheaded is beheaded. At the point it goes, you don't care who's swinging the sword, right? Um, Stephen is martyred for his faith in Acts chapter 7. Please don't tell me that the Lord won't allow his people to die for their faith. We don't even get out of the book of Acts, let alone on into Christian history to see that, yes, he will. Famine, again, Lottie Moon, those of you who are Southern Baptist, Lottie Moon, our, our, our missionary that Southern Baptists have been using for my lifetime and beyond to raise money at Christmas time for foreign missions. Wade, what did she die of? Do you recall? Starvation. Because in fam famine, she was a missionary to China, and she would not eat until all of the people that she had led to faith in Christ could eat. And it was a time of famine. She starved herself to death because the people she had led to faith in Christ had starved to death. And the International Mission Board, at the time the Foreign Mission Board, evacuated her, got her as far as Japan, and she died on them anyway. So one of our lead missionaries in our exact denomination died of starvation because of her faith. 
Plague, you really want to do that down 2,000 years of history since the cross? Wars, do you think, have, have, have Christians died in wars much? So please, whatever, whatever motivation you would have to hold the pre-trib position, if you hold that position, and if you, your well, motivation is that's what I believe the Bible teaches, bravo, I'm glad. Um, but if part of your motivation is that you don't believe God would permit his people to go through events like the events of the 70th week, check yourself. And please, 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 please never believe that you are in some category that would be immune, categorically immune, from those very sorts of troubles. I'm not wishing them on you. I'm not wishing them on me. I'd rather not starve to death. I'd just as soon not be beheaded or sick with plague or caught up in a war if I had my druthers. But if I am utterly convicted that those things are not possible as a part of the life story that God would write for me, I'm, I'm being naive and I'm potentially setting myself up to believe that God has betrayed me should I find myself in those circumstances because I'm seeking to hold God to promises that he in fact never made. And I'm, fixed, I'm, I'm seeking to hold myself as some category different than the saints down the ages. And that's, that's a dangerous thing to hold to the fallacy that these things are things from which we are immune because we are believers. Third objective, that we would love one another even while talking about and potentially disagreeing on secondary matters. My goodness, that's important. I gave you the old Puritan quote. I think I said the very first week, the old Puritan said to his wife, wrong, wrong, wrong. They are all wrong except me and thee, and at times I doubtest thee. Um, you can, if you start, if you start carving, if you start carving off brothers and sisters in Christ whom you ought to love, and you start carving them off and discarding them relationally, because you find out that they hold a different view on some secondary matter than you do? Well, they hold to this and I hold to this, so I shall carve them off and reject them. And you carve off and reject, and you carve off and reject, and you carve off and reject. You're going to get very, very lonely and potentially bitter. And that's, that's not to be our experience. That's why I'm glad, in our church's case, that our, our confession of faith is written precisely enough to capture primary matters and broadly enough to leave you and I room to disagree. So if you think the fruit in the Garden of Eden was an apple and I think it was a pear, we don't have to break fellowship. <laughs> and you and I, if you've, been around, if you've been around Christians for long, there's a whole lot of, you know, neurotic basket case unbelievers sometimes become neurotic basket case believers. Um, and uh, <laughs> you and I both known a few, and one of the things that neurotic basket case believers will insist on is, is utter agreement, and they'll call it unity. Well, if you and I, how can, how can two walk together except they be agreed? Well, now, agreed on what? Two can walk together if they're agreed on where they're going and the speed they're going to make it in. 
They don't have to agree on, on what they're having for lunch. They don't have to agree on what kind of shoes they're wearing. They don't have to agree. There's a whole lot of things they don't have to agree on, and they can walk along just fine, as long as they agree about course, destination, and speed. They can walk together all day long. There's a, the illustration's a good one. All right. Fourth objective that you'd find out, you know what? Supper's pretty good on Wednesday nights at McGregor, and, and there are some interesting things being talked about. So maybe we can make that part of the rhythm of our life. I just added that objective. <laughs> Last week, we did a 50,000-foot flyover of, of the, uh, the sequence of events from now to the rapture of the church at the onset of the day of the Lord at the sixth seal. I shared with you what I believe to be next, that, that heavenly moment when the Lamb takes the scroll. And so, um, for, the next, for the next several weeks, I think, I think here's what we'll do. We've got four weeks left counting tonight. So here's what we're going to do with the next four weeks. Tonight, we're going to look at the 70th week. We're going we're gonna to drill a little bit further into the 70th week, or if you prefer, the tribulation, or if you prefer the, the, the onset of the beginning of birth pangs and the great tribulation, all of those terms are the same for a future seven-year period of deep distress on the earth. We'll look at that tonight. A week from tonight, we'll look at the rapture itself, which seems to me to come at the end of that 70th week, and we'll look at, look at some of what the Word of God teaches us about that, that event, the removal of God's people from the earth. And then another week, uh, two weeks from tonight, we'll look at the day of the Lord. It is one of the most common themes in both Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. It comes up again and again and again, and it is cataclysmic. Um, and we'll take a look at that a couple of weeks from tonight. And then in our, our, our very last of the six nights, we'll look at the millennium and beyond, uh, the, 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 the establishment of Jesus Christ, thousand-year reign on the earth, and the very good stuff that comes in and after that. So... Um, it is a six-month six study shoved into six weeks, and uh, it, there are going to be a whole lot of, of um, topics that I don't touch on uh, because, again, six weeks uh, and, and trying to maintain a good walking pace. So, the 70th week. Um, Roman numeral one. And I know that you've got the blank, the, just the blank page for the outline. Uh, and uh, I, I hope I will be able to move at a pace that you'll be able to follow me. Roman number one, it's foundation. It's foundation. We're going to look at, at, at the, the uh, first... Actually, we'll look at pretty much all of Daniel 9 at a walking pace. Daniel 9. Um, the first question that comes up is, we're talking about the order of events in New Testament prophecy 
what in the world are we doing nine chapters into the Old Testament book of Daniel? Why, what, you know, what, what, what's Daniel got to do with it? If you were here last week, or if you've listened to last week, you will recall that this, this is relevant because Jesus pulled it in to what... He, when, when Jesus was asked to explain to his followers what will be the indications of the end of the age, in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, which is, which is given in part in all of the, at least all of the synoptic gospels, all Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the longest version is in Matthew, in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus said, And when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So one of the major mile markers between now and the end of things, a major mile marker the Lord told us to look for, Unless you hold that the Olivet Discourse is not for Christians. That's an interesting viewpoint to me. If we're going to do that, I have some other things Jesus said in Matthew that I don't want to be for Christians. So if you're making a list of, of sermons in Matthew that you don't have to pay attention to because they're not for Christians, I have a, the Sermon on the Mount, please, because that one makes me squirm a lot. It's interesting to me that we would draw a circle around one of the sermons of Jesus in Matthew and say it doesn't have to do with us. But, but I digress. In Matthew 24, 15, Jesus said, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Okay, so what Jesus just did is reach back and appropriate the prophetic content of Daniel 9. At the very least, Daniel 9, 27, but I suspect more than that because Daniel 9, 27 needs a context. So we find in Daniel 9 sort of the foundation work for this future 70th week. Daniel writes, I'm, uh, I'm actually going to start, I'm not going to do the, let me start in verse 20. I won't, I won't attempt to do the whole chapter because we're going to get to the content of, of this, this um, prophecy that comes actually from the mouth of Gabriel. When I, Daniel, was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting, I'm in Daniel 9, 20. And presenting my petition before Yahweh my God concerning the holy mountain of my God while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Now we know because we have the further identity of Gabriel both from the Old Testament and predominantly from the Christmas narrative in the New Testament, we know that Gabriel is, is the one who quote, he introduces himself in Matthew 1 as I am Gabriel who stand in the presence of the living God. So apparently Gabriel stands at God's elbow by the throne waiting for God to send him to earth from time to time with stuff that needs saying. This is consistent with that. While I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out and I have come to give it. For you are treasured by God, so consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Um, the word week throughout this passage, the English word week translates literally, translates what is literally the Hebrew number seven. So every time you, every time you have weeks, 
through the rest of this down through and including verse 27, you can say sevens. Seventy-sevens are decreed, all right? Weeks is fine as long as you understand that here, week means literally sevens. So seventy-sevens are weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away injustice, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until, the, until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks, um, that is not... That is the 62 weeks that come after the seven weeks. There are seven weeks, there are seven sevens, and then there are 62 sevens. And after those 62 sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. And the people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He, who he, the coming prince, verse 26. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Hmm. Rough chronology. The command to rebuild Jerusalem, the decree spoken of in verse 25, is about 450 B.C. Now, I'm going to use about and approximate a lot because different scholars tweak these dates differently. And neither you nor I were there. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll use approximate and about a lot. Um, but not far off. About 450 B.C. Um, the first seven sevens comes down four, 49 years from that. That, that, that um, uh, it will be seven weeks and 62 weeks there in verse 25. The first seven sevens, 49 years, gets us to the approximate end of the New Testament era, about 401 or 400 B.C. So there's your first seven sevens. From the time of the decree to the end of God speaking prophetically to his Old Testament people and the end of the Old Testament era in about 400. Then you have another 62 sevens or 434 years. Well, if we're at 400 B.C. and we go another 62 years, that puts us at about 33, 34 A.D., which is about the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Um, the, after those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. So he's, he's close to pinpointing the very year of the death of Jesus in this prophecy of Daniel. Note that following his death, the city and temple are destroyed. This was, this was first fulfilled in A.D. 70. Somebody asked me this week, 
isn't the abomination of desolation when the Greek conqueror Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple in the interbiblical period. If all we had is Daniel's prophecy, that would be a very good question. Daniel, looking forward, sees Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek conqueror, desecrate the temple in the interbiblical period, and that certainly meets many of the qualifications of the abomination of desolation. Okay. But Jesus, centuries after that, tells us to look forward to it in the future. So while the behavior of Antiochus in the interbiblical period may have prefigured the abomination of desolation, it cannot be its ultimate fulfillment because Jesus spoke of its ultimate fulfillment as a future event. And while the temple was destroyed quite thoroughly in A.D. 70, and Jesus was certainly speaking in part of that because you remember in the question that prompted the Olivet Discourse, his disciples asked him regarding the destruction of the temple, when will these things be and what will be the sign of the end of the age? So Jesus is weaving two different answers. So Jesus' Olivet Discourse certainly predicts the A.D. 70 destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And if you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem, you can see to this day in an uh, archaeological park at the southwestern corner of the Temple Mount, near where Robinson's Arch was. The mass, some massive boulders that are part of what was scraped off the Temple Mount are still right there in situ. They're right there where they landed in 70 when the Rome... What happened is in about 66, chasing this rabbit for a second, about 66 AD, civil war broke out in the northern part of, of, of the Roman province of Judea. The, the Jews had always been, you would tell this for the Gospels, the Jews had always been a notoriously difficult province for the Roman Empire to govern. In about 66 A.D., civil war breaks out in the northern part of Jerusalem and begins to spread south. Of course, wars moved at different speed back then, right? Um, and so skirmishes and wars moved their way south until finally um, the Roman Empire, having had enough, lowers the boom on the city of Jerusalem in the year 70 and, and wipes, wipes the last Jewish temple to stand on the Temple Mount from that day to this, was wiped off the Temple Mount in the year 70. Um, but Jesus said not just the, the destruction of the temple, but an abomination of desolation uh, that is, well, we'll see other places that describe it in more detail in a bit, uh, as a future event. We've used 69 out of Daniel's 70 weeks. The angel said, 70 weeks are decreed. 77s are decreed. And he's told us about seven of them and then 62 of them. So we're at 69 of them. The last week happens in verse 27. It begins when, when this, this coming prince makes a firm covenant with many for one week. Roman numeral two. If its foundation is everything we've talked about, and I know I've given you a mishmash of, of, of what is for me not a real Bing, 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 organized outline. Uh, Roman numeral two, it's futurity or futureness. Futurity is probably the better word, but futureness might be more e easy to spell. Can futureness be a word? Is futureness a word? We can make it one, all right. Words have to get born somewhere. <laughs> 
He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Um, look again at Daniel 9.24. This entire package of 70, 70 weeks is decreed to bring rebellion to an end and put a stop to sin, wipe away injustice, and bring in everlasting righteousness. These events speak to the onset of the millennial reign, which happens after the 70th week and after the day of the Lord. Um, so we're looking for a future 70th week. Roman numeral three, its features. What's in here? Well, it begins with the arising of a false Christ at the beginning of the 70th week. The, the earth... The earth view perspective. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, many will come in my name. That there will be a season of false Christs. So false Christ gets raised by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. The first seal, we looked at it in the book of Revelation, is the, is the rider on the white horse who's given a crown, goes forth conquering and to conquer. Now, we know, if we've read the whole book of Revelation, that the ultimate rider that comes forth on a white horse is the real Christ. This early appearance of a rider on a white horse is, an, is a pretender. He's an imposter. Uh, goes forth to conquer, conquering and to conquer. Uh, he is a a military figure of some renown, apparently. Because, again, he goes forth conquering. He is on a white horse with a sword and a crown. Probably the best biblical sketch of him is given in Revelation chapter 13. Where he is introduced as the beast from the sea in verses 1 through 10. And I'm, uh, I'm not going to bog down in what does ten horns and seven heads mean. And Let me do another digression for a minute. One of the most important things when studying the book of Revelation is not to lose what is plain in the narrative because you're trying to drill down to the smallest of details. Uh, several, several years ago, my sons, I think, I either bought it in college or I got it as a gift from my sons. I, don't, I honestly don't remember. Um, but I, I, I had a poster. And, and if you looked at my poster up close... It is, a, it is a massive, it's a poster-sized piece of art. And it, row after row after row, column after column after column, in, in pictures about the size of a postage stamp, it's all single-frame images from the movie The Empire Strikes Back. Every, it, 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 it's, I don't know, 10,000 tiny little images, and every one, if you look at it real up close, Every single one of them is an image, a frame, from the movie The Empire Strikes Back. If I hung it on the wall over there and stepped over here and looked at it, you know what it is? It's a picture of Yoda. 
It's, a, it's, it's somehow with software, I guess, they built a, a, a photo mosaic of tiny little, tiny little images of frames from the movie where Yoda was introduced. If Craig can talk about Yoda on a Sunday morning, I can talk about him on a Wednesday night. Don't look at me like that. All right, what's the best way to understand that poster? To dive down into a frame-by-frame -frame analysis and wonder why that particular uh, alien, I mean, imperial walker thing has his leg at this angle instead of this angle? Or to start back here and go, oh, I get it, it's Yoda. Revelation is the story of the triumph of the Lamb and of his people. Revelation is the story of the triumph of the Lamb and his people. And if you want to give yourself acid reflux trying to look at what each of the ten horn means or each of the ten crowns mean, a whole lot of writing has been done by a whole lot of people and you can have the time of your life with that if that's what you're into. Just be careful that you're not doing, okay, I need to, I need to know for certain what color hair that soldier in the third row has in that picture. And I miss what it's a picture of. All right. We're going to understand who this guy is. Check this out. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems. That's crowns. And on his heads were blasphemous names. That is, names that credit him with things that can only be credited to God. The beast I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like a bear's, and his mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And one of the heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but his fatal wound was healed. Whole novels have been written about that. I have no idea. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. I do understand that. And they worshiped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against him? Militarily empowered super ruler. A mouth was given to him to speak boasts and blasphemies, and he was also given authority to act for 42 months. That's three and a half years. That's half of Daniel's, the first half of Daniel's 70th week. That 42 months is his rise to authority. He began to speak blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. Blaspheming his name and his dwelling those who dwell in heaven. I, don't, I read that as an additional sequence. Different translations, even the Holman puts it as a hyphen. I believe it's the abomination of desolation. I believe it is his claiming for himself the temple. And I'll show you other scriptures that seem to indicate that. Those who dwell in heaven, he was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. The mass martyrdoms of the fifth seal. He was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who live on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. He'll be worshipped by everybody in the world except those believers that he's waging war on. If anyone has an ear, he should listen. If anyone is destined for captivity, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. Here is the endurance and the faith of the saints. That is... God is still sovereignly in control even during the reign of the beast. 
Here is the endurance and faith of the saints. Seems that would have been a great chance for the book of Revelation to say, but you don't have to worry about him because you won't be here. And I'm not trying to be argumentative, except in the make a point sense. Please, please, I am not, I didn't suddenly come here tonight with low blood sugar to pick a fight. <laughs> My blood sugar is fine and I don't like fighting. Um, the beast arises. He befriends Israel. Go back to Daniel. He befriends Israel for three and a half years. I think, I think part of what will get him his credentials, part of what will make him so highly regarded is going to be his, his appearance of awesome respect for Israel. I suspect he will be invited to any number of evangelical churches um, because he'll be so pro-Israel, they'll love him. By the way, participate politically as you are gifted and called to do. Please remember that your real citizenship is elsewhere. And please don't give loyalty to any earthly political system when, to a degree that such loyalty should be reserved for Christ. And I say that to you as a patriotic American. I've told you I cry. I cry when the Star Spangled Banner is sung poorly by a middle school girl at a high school basketball game. I, uh, you know I raised a son that, 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 that served as a, he's now out, but he served up to the rank of captain in the United States Army including a combat deployment, and my wife and I were proud of him. I am a patriot's patriot, but this is not my home. And I don't owe loyalty to a red party or a blue party or a this issue or a that issue. I owe my loyalty to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that when some super winsome, super attractive world leader steps forward on the stage and everybody, including people who ought to know better, start looking to that, that supernaturally charismatic world leader as though he were some sort of savior, I hope... I hope I, in fact, I know because I'm saved that I won't be susceptible to that. It makes me cringe when I see Christian leaders go eyeball deep in unconditional loyalty to world political figures of any stripe. We may function within the system to a degree. We're at our best when we function prophetically outside the system putting the bony figure of the righteousness of God in the face of political power, not cozying up to it for what it's worth. Funny story. Years ago when I was at Bellevue, you, many of you know I spent five and a half years on the staff of Bellevue in, in Memphis. The, 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 the pastor of that church was, was uh, Dr. Adrian Rogers, and Dr. Rogers liked preaching on prophetic themes, and he was a very good teacher. 
And uh, during that time, at least part of that time, there was a very, very charismatic and very, very popular with Christians world leader in the White House. One day after church, a lady came up to him and said, do you believe that our present president is the Antichrist? And Dr. Rogers said, well, why, why would you even ask that? One of the symbolic numbers associated with the power of the beast is the number 666. And um, I don't know that we'll get to that in this study or not. I've already told you there's a lot of things we won't run down. But, but the person said to Dr. Rogers, well, have you noticed Ronald, six letters, Wilson, six letters, Reagan, six letters. <laughs> In the five and a half years I served with Dr. Rogers, I've, I've never in my life seen anyone as quick on their feet mentally as he was. He was an astonishingly gifted man of God. And he said back to her, ma'am, I have some struggle with that because Adrian, six letters. His middle name was Pierce, six letters. His last name was Rogers, six letters. And he said, he said ma'am, I'm, I'm, I'm a little less excited about that perhaps than you are. <laughs> if you lie on your back on a cloudy day and look for kittens and puppies in the clouds, you'll see them. He is a, he is a much admired, supernaturally gifted hero to the lost world. But then at the, at the halfway point, at the end of those 42 months, but in the middle of the week, says Daniel 9, 27, 42 months, says Revelation 13, he will put and stop to sacrifice an offering. Whatever, whatever temple activity has been allowed to be resumed by virtue of the covenant that he made when he first stepped on the scene three and a half years earlier, three and a half years in, he's going to say enough of that. This is not about the living God. This is about me. And he will abominab abominably claim the temple as his own. Thessalonica still exists as a city in northern Greece. It's called Thessaloniki today, but it's the same place. Paul wrote to them, 2 Thessalonians. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him, his arrival and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind. I'm in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Not to be easily upset in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by a message or by a letter as if from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering to him, don't believe that the day of the Lord has come. So it seems to me that a plain reading of what Paul has said is, 
Don't, don't be concerned about the coming and the gathering as though the day of the Lord has come. It seems to me that he's putting both the coming and the gathering together as events that occur on the day of the Lord and telling them, don't, don't think you've missed it. You won't. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come. That day, not those days. The coming and the gathering. That day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. That is, the falling away of false believers in the pressure of the fifth seal. Ah, Brother Russell, that's a stretch. Okay. Does this stretch for the abomination of desolation? And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary publishing that he himself is God. Goodness gracious, that sounds like the abomination of desolation to me, which we have been told by Jesus to look forward to as a mile marker on our way to the sixth seal and the rapture of the church. Seems to me that Paul is telling his friends in Thessalonica exactly that same thing, using almost exactly the same words, certainly the same word pictures. So at the midpoint, he, he reveals or, or comes forward in his true colors. That puts in place a three-and-a-half-year period of accelerated persecution, martyrdom, and faithfulness among the followers of Jesus Christ. Another quote from Dr. Rogers. There's nothing wrong with the North American church that a few years of persecution won't fix. I don't like that I believe that to be true. I'm not fond of it. The best example in my lifetime of a church that has had to function underground against persecution has been the church in China. And every single missionary that I know or everyone that I know who's talked to a missionary who has gone in and served among the Chinese Christians in the latter part of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st they tell me that the church in China is flourishing, that the Chinese Christians are faithful and sacrificial and generous and kind and ruthlessly persecuted. Um, major things become major things in persecution. Minor things become minor things in persecution. I, I alluded in last Sunday morning's message I, I, uh, to, to Nicodemus, who had... Uh, pardon me, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a follower of Jesus, but secretly, according to John 19. And I don't like that term. I don't like that that's in there. Uh, I wish John had said it a different way. I, I don't know what to do with the idea of someone who says they're a follower of Jesus, but is intent upon keeping it secret. That, that causes me some heartburn. But what I do know about him is when the high-pressure opportunity came, and it was either sit by and let the, the, the sacrifice of Christ happen without his involvement or step up in that very dark moment 
both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea stepped up and very publicly owned their identity as followers of Christ. And what I said Sunday, I stand by it. Times of intense pressure in your life are going to reveal your character. They'll play a role in forming your character as well, but they'll, they'll also reveal it. And if in a time of intense pressure you decide, you know what, that's it, Christianity doesn't work for me or I wouldn't be here. If, if God were such a big deal, I wouldn't be having to deal with what I'm dealing with. And in a time of intense pressure, a faith you actually never really had becomes the faith you can readily abandon. On the other hand, for the follower of Christ, oh, now the stakes are going up. Now I either stand publicly for what I believe and let the chips fall where they may, including my own head as one of those chips, or I must acknowledge the fact that I would readily deny Christ. I don't believe there's any such thing as a believer that will fail in that moment. In fact, I know there aren't any believers that fail in that moment because the contents of the Lamb's Book of Life... Um, from the perspective of heaven, stand fixed. Eternal security is a reality for the believer. We might deny Christ in small ways, but in the pressure of the fifth seal, there will be a distillation. I think churches will shrink, but I don't think the population of believers will shrink. I think the population of believers will get stronger, more faithful, and more dependent upon one another. In that, in that last part. And then, the cosmic disturbances. Somewhere just short. Jesus made an enigmatic statement in uh, Matthew. Go back to the Olivet Discourse for a moment. Matthew 24. We talked through the relationship between the Olivet Discourse and the, and the six seals of the book of Revelation last week in some detail. If you were not here and have not listened to that, I want to encourage you to go back and see how well they fit together. Um, verse 15, when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. That's when we're entering this back half and it's going to get very, very rough. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not go down to get the things in his house. A man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. And woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. What a terribly tragic thing to say, but you would not want to have been uh, a, a pregnant citizen of Hiroshima on the day the A-bomb dropped. So as... as 
as brutal as that statement is, it's not without its historical precedent. There have been times in history where you would not want to be launching your new family, times and places. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for at that time there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Verse 22 is fascinating to me. Unless those days were limited, no one would survive, but those days will be limited because of the elect. I think that means that the back three and a half years has a slight haircut. Um, in, because, because the day of the Lord does come at an uncertain day. I believe it's three and a half years from the abomination of desolation to the day of the Lord, but it's three and a half years minus Matthew 24, 22. Whatever Matthew 24, 22 is. That there is a, a shortening of the back half of the 70th week. A lot of interpretive latitude there, but that's what I believe he's saying. Or put another way, I don't know what else he could be saying. And anyone who tells you then, during that period, here's the Messiah, or over here, don't believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. It's not, but they will lead, aside, they will lead astray many who will like a solution to the difficulty of those days down some shortcut other than faithfulness through those days. Take note, I've told you in advance. So if they tell you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. And that simply means when you see something, it indicates something else. Um, you've had it happen, I've had it happen to me on my morning commute. And my morning commute is Daniels Parkway, this side of I-75, down to Palomino, up Palomino to the new extension, well, comparatively new, all, all the way up Palomino to Colonial, and Colonial 100 yards into the church parking lot. I do that in the morning because it's all right turns. In the morning, I, in the afternoon, I go home, Colonial to 75, to Daniels, because that's all right turns. I do the great big circle every day. That's my daily commute. Even on my daily commute, no part of which is out in the country. It's not uncommon at all for me to, to, to see in the sky on a clear day birds circling. There's a whole bunch of, of buzzards, or whatever they're more properly called, circling up there right over that spot about 100 yards ahead of me. What does that tell me is on the, on the ground up there? Something dead, right? When I see that, I know I can look for that. That's all that Jesus is saying here. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Verse 22, I believe the shortened back three and a half years. How short? I do not know. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not shed its light. This is the language, uh, the same language as the sixth seal. It's the same prophetic language used by uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost to describe the day the church age ends the harbinger of the day of the Lord. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the celestial powers will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn 
And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet. And we talked about angels, trumpets, shouts, and the gathering of the elect. That's got to be the rapture, at least it seems to me. All right, finally tonight, Roman numeral four, its function. What, is, what, is this, what does this have to do with and for the followers of Jesus Christ? I see three things. I see first that it increases the health of the church. I partially quote Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 almost every Sunday that I'm up on the platform as part of my, uh, my encouragement for us to be, uh, my encouragement for us to be encouraging one another. Uh, I, I say something like, we gather, when we gather on Sunday mornings for worship, we gather for at least the three following purposes. To worship the Lord, we've already started doing some of that. It's amazing how scripted you become. I'm, I am quite liturgical. I'm just liturgical in a baptistic sort of way. To study God's Word, we're going to be doing that in a few minutes. I'm going to be so self-conscious the next time I do this uh, over there. And the Word of God says that when we gather, we're to be an encouragement to one another. And I sometimes will even throw off. It's in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. But let's look at those verses in more detail. Verse 19, the start of the paragraph says, Therefore, brothers, because we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he has inaugurated for us through the curtain, that is his flesh, and since we have a great, not the, the curtain is not his flesh, the new and living way is the sacrifice of his flesh. The symbology is the torn curtain that happened when Christ died on the cross. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then there are three things. First, let us draw near. That's verse 22. Verse 23, let us hold on. And then verse 24, and let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our meetings, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other. And that's the point that I usually make on Sunday mornings, but keep reading. But encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there is a day that is drawing near. And we will see it drawing near. And in light of that time when we see that day drawing near, we must be very, very deliberate, more so than ever before, in our encouraging one another. Because we're going to need each other. We're going to need each other in a worldwide way, the way our dear brothers and sisters in the radically persecuted church have grown to love and need each other at times and places down the history of Christianity. To increase the health of the church. Second, to increase the holiness of the church. Come with me to 2 Peter. Second Peter three. 
And I shared with you last, last week, or the week before, that for me, 2 Peter 3.10 was the verse that caused me to first hear something crack in my head over the, over the equating of the rapture with the word picture of a thief in the night, which equation in my history had been made over and over again as part of my, uh, my history that the rapture was, was going to be this thing that would come like a thief in the night. And there were books written and movies for young people and a bunch of publishing. That was in my head. And then one day, minding my own business, reading my New Testament, I came upon 1 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God because of which... So what are we waiting for and what are we desiring? The day of God, because of which the heavens will be on fire and be dissolved, and the elements will melt with the heat. But based on His promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. So to increase the holiness of the church. What sort of people should we be? Holy conduct and godliness. And then to increase the hope of the church. Um, I'm going to poke fun at us because I've said this too. Quoting, quoting the tourist brochures or quoting the people who sell real estate down here or the people who quote or the people who sell vacations down here, what's the one word name we sometimes hear for, for this part of the world? Oh, yeah. And I've done it. I mean, wow, the weather these last couple of days, right? Blue skies, palm trees. There are, there are communities and neighborhoods within just a few miles of where I am, and praise God for these communities and neighborhoods. By the way, I've given you the definition of a, of a materialist before, haven't I? The definition of a materialist is someone who has more or nicer stuff than I do. Okay? So if you live in an $8 million home on the waterfront, God bless you, man. And I'm enough, I'm enough, I, I, I wrote that sarcastic definition of materialism to keep me reminded uh, that, that you're no materialist if you have more and nicer stuff than I do, and I'm no materialist if I have more and nicer stuff than you do. And I sit in my very comfortable home and I watch my television and I pet my puppy. Puppies. And the food is the way I want it. The weather is the way I want it. The television is the way that I want it. My comfy chair is the way that I want it. The temperature in the room is the way that I want it. My yard is the way that I want it. My house is the way that I want it. 
Need I go on? And by the way, all of that happening in paradise. May I confess to you that I do not necessarily live every day in a gut-wrenching longing for heaven. And if that makes you think less of me, I'm sorry. I don't mean to confess that I hold heaven in disregard. I hold heaven in very high regard, but I live in paradise now. <laughs> and on most days, most of the details of my life are either arranged or readily arrangeable to my liking. And you too, by the way. For most of the people in this room, on most days, most of the details of our lives are arranged to our liking. Even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come, but please right after the Super Bowl, because I want to see. I was never necessarily a Patriots fan until what the, Ram, the way the Rams won their game, and now I'd like to see that set right. Every teenage, every godly teenage kid that was part of our youth group in the 70s, and we were watching all these scary movies about the rapture, and we're all trying to live for Jesus, and we're serious about our faith, and we're all teenagery. <laughs> Lord, I hope you'll come and rapture us, but please not before I get married. Because <laughs> there's something I ain't done yet that I'd like to do at least once or twice. Before I go to a place where I understand we don't necessarily do that. Okay, now I have managed to make you think less of me. Um, Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse. Longing for heaven. Longing for heaven. Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse. Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 25. This is going to sound familiar. And remember, this is common in the Gospels, that different Gospels will give us slightly different um, phrases. That's not uncommon at all. It doesn't mean there are errors and contradictions it means that we have multiple lights shining on the same moment so we can see the whole picture. Then there will be, he's talking about the sixth seal. Then there will be signs. This is at the end of that period of martyrdom. They will fall. Verse, let me go up to verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive into all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And there will be anguish on earth among nations, bewildered by the roaring sea and waves. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world because the celestial powers will be shaken. Now picture this at the end of a three and a half year period where you're getting daily updates of which of your believing friends have been executed. And suddenly a whole lot of things that used to matter don't. And then there is this cosmic shaking. And the world is, what in the world? What's going on? What's going on? This is terrifying. But for us, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, stand up 
and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. And we'll want it then. We'll want it really, really badly because we will not have been, for a period of years, we will not have been living in a set of circumstances where most of us have things mostly to our liking most of the time. It will have gotten very, very dark. And during those three and a half years, the church, even the sweet North American church, will rediscover what it is to long for heaven and to long for a moment when we get to stand up and hold our heads up again because our Lord is about to vindicate His people. Next week, we will look at the event that comes right on the heels of that sixth seal, God's removal of His people before the outpouring of the day of the Lord wrath. Uh, I, had, I had one question come in that was actually posed to me as a question. Uh, not, the, not exactly on topic, but the question was, what age will we be in heaven? <laughs> do I get to go to heaven? At, do I get to pick that? Um, I, I, I do not know. Let me answer a different question. That's the, that's, that's the master of a... Politicians who do press conferences always answer the question they wish you had asked. Um, I know that our ability to recognize each other won't have anything to do with what we physically look like. How do I know that? Because the, the followers of Jesus Christ awoke from the middle of, at the middle of the night on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they looked over and they saw Jesus having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. You remember that? Had they ever seen a picture of Moses or Elijah? Yet they knew who they were. You're going to be known in heaven based on something other than what you look like. And all God's people said? Amen. Uh, I don't know what earthly, human, fallen world age you will, you will appear to be. Scripture, as far as I can tell, is silent on that. But we will be able to know one another better than we ever have before. And it won't be based on the shallow first impressions that forms so much of what we have to deal with on a fallen world. Let me pray and then we'll go. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you that you've, um, you've spoken to your people. And Lord, as I, as I often pray, tonight I am quite certain I took some moments and did some hopefully lighthearted foolishness. But if in my so doing I have detracted or distracted from the truth of your word, forgive me and bless my brothers and sisters with the gift of forgetfulness. He said something dumb, but I don't remember what it was. And Lord, drive us into your word. May we deal gently with each other and lovingly with each other on these secondary matters but may we deal directly and brutally in our own study as we work hard to know what we believe and have that belief be grounded firmly and thoroughly in your word. Lord, bless us as we go and uh, function in the community as the dispersed body of Christ until you bring us back here together this Lord's Day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
God bless you. Good night.